You ever been anxious before? You ever worried? Ever expressed, uh, felt burnout? Maybe even depression? You know, for some reason, we live in this culture that uh, sometimes applies cultural things, which means we everything has to be instant and, and super easy to Scripture, when Scripture doesn't really mean to be applied that way. One Scripture in particular will do, sometimes we think that Christians are supposed to be people that never express any anxiety, any thing that even resembles burnout or depression in their lives, because we read scriptures like, uh, like Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, which says this. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you think and thank him for all that he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds everything. Uh, anything we can understand is peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And we read that, and we think that's kind of an instant promise, that we, if we just do that, if we just pray uh, a quick prayer, God, everything's going to make everything fine, and you're going to be perfect, and I just hate to tell you this, that's not true. Because this is prayer is not just about an instant answer, it's about a process in life of not only praying rightly, which means we continually connect with God, not only thinking rightly because it's a process of beginning to God changing our mind, but also living rightly, which means that we realize that we can't do everything in life and God has not called us to do everything in life. See, worry is probably the greatest thief of joy in our lives, and it's the greatest thief of joy for Christians particularly. Today we're going to talk about something we don't talk about much in church. We're going to talk about anxiety. We're going to talk about worry. We're going to talk about burnout. We're going to talk about depression. A few years ago, I encountered uh, a guy at a conference. I went to the leadership summit, and some of you may have been to that before. It's been been broadcast all over the world. It's a Christian gathering of, of of uh, church leaders and business leaders. And one of the guys that spoke many years ago was a, name, a guy named Wayne Cordera. Wayne Cordera is a, a pastor in, of all places, Oahu, Hawaii. He's a pastor of a huge church there. It's a church that runs like 14,000 now. It's got, they've planted over 100 churches in the Pacific Rim. Uh, they have, uh, he's also president of a Bible college in Oregon. He got, just does a few things like that, you know. And when he was 52 years old, he wrote a book, and it was out of the experiences that he had in his life, and, and, and the book was called Leading on Empty. And I heard him speak at a, a conference, and, 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 I, and I thought it was great, and, and you know, this, this was oh, probably eight or ten years ago, and the book didn't really apply to me too much at that time. Um, the, the teachings, I picked it up, read the first few chapters, but let me tell you, over the last three or four years, I've picked it up and read it four times. And I want to share some stuff I learned from that book that God taught me through Scripture today and, and what it applies to where we are now and what the future looks like for Great Oaks in regards to leadership. The first thing that he said in the introduction to the book is this. He said, he said this. He said, we don't forget that we are Christians. We forget that we are human. You might want to write that down and put it on your refrigerator. Because that's an important thing. The thing is, for some reason, we think that Christians are supposed to be like cheerleaders in a, in a, in a snowstorm. You know what cheerleaders look like in a snowstorm? Have you ever been to a football game at Metamore or Washington or any place like that? It's in the middle of a snowstorm. And it's blowing around. Everybody's miserable. You're huddled up. And here are the cheerleaders out on the field. And they still got smiles on their faces. 
And they're going, go team, go. You know, and they're acting like that. And you're going like, come on. You've got to be miserable too because they got these little outfits on. Sometimes they'll actually put sweatshirts on or something or sweats or something. But they're still cheering and smiling like everything is wonderful. And for some reason, we think that the Christian life is supposed to be that kind of fake thing as well. We know that it's fake when the cheerleaders, they're, called, they're taught to do that because they're supposed to get the crowd all, all, you know, fired up. But that's not what it means to be a Christian. Christians are real people. Christians are people that, that struggle with things in life because, you know, as I thought about this, I was thinking about, <laughs> you know, if a guy like Wayne Cordero, a pastor, how does a guy in Hawaii even understand the whole concept of burnout? <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine that. But, you know, something, it has nothing to do with the externals. As he learned, you can experience that. And he wrote this book, probably one of, if you want to read a great book, it's written for pastors, but it would apply to everybody leading on empty by Wayne Cordero. Um, it, you can get it on, I have it on my iPad as well now, and, and a, it's, it's, it's a great book for me and, and helped me in so many ways. But the reality is, is he said some things in there that kind of made me think about, you know, here's this guy who's this great leader, probably considered one of the top 20 most influential pastors in America by many different groups, and, and, and he said some things. Let me quote some things that he said in the book about himself. This is about himself. He says, he says, it arrived without warning, like an uninvited guest. Decisions that were once simple now refuse solution, and I found myself dodging anything that asked for my emotional input. My once stalwart faith was left fragile, and I avoided whatever required my action. He said, I'd been leading on empty. It was a journey through a season of burnout and recalibration that would radically change my lifestyle, my values, my goals, and even readjust my calling. The signs were all around me, but I ignored them. Simple problems refused solution. Anything that necessitated emotional energy sent me in the other direction. He said, my love for God had not, been, uh, had not abandoned me. My marriage was stable, and the ministry seemed healthy. But I still had no idea how to confront the silent predator that was stalking me, sometimes far behind and at other times so close I could feel its breath on my neck. And that was the beginning of this whole book and this introduction about his, his journey through burnout, depression, and then back toward health again. The interesting thing about this is if we read Scripture, we read Philippians, that passage I read just a few moments ago, it seemed like it's, the Christian life is just a, a simple one prayer away to everything being resolved. If that was the case, then why do we read throughout Scripture the lives of so many saints that went through the same things that Wayne Kaderas talked about? Let me give you some examples. When it comes to burnout, we're in good company. Elijah. I was on Mount Carmel uh, earlier this year. I was, I was uh, looking on, uh, on Facebook this week. Uh, I actually got a thing from my accountability partner. Uh, I can't remember if it's a text or a... I've got some text from him this week, too. He and his son are, are in, in Israel right now. I don't know if they visit Mount Carmel, but I was at Mount Carmel, and, and, and something incredible happened at Mount Carmel, those who know Scripture. Old Testament, uh, the, the prophet Elijah had this, this showdown at Mount Carmel where he confronted 850 cultic priests of Baal and Asherah. And, and when he came out the other side, God threw down the fire and then he destroyed all these 850 prophets and it was this great victory. And right after that, though, this one woman, her name was Jezebel, said, said to 
to people, some people about Elisha. She said, may the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you, talking to Elijah, just as you killed them, talking about the prophets, or talking about the, the priest of, of Baal and Asherah. And what did this guy who had just experienced this, this, this incredible, powerful confrontation and, and, and a sign from God that he was, God was with him, what did he do? He runs and hides. And we read at the end that he was exhausted, it said, and he was alone, and then he prayed. And in 1 Kings 19.4, he says this. He says, Elijah says, take away my life. I might as well be dead. Does that sound like somebody who's going through some burnout and some depression? Better believe it. He was a guy who was a follower, a leader of, of, of God's people. Another Old Testament guy, Moses. Moses, I mean... If, if you don't even know anything about, about the Bible, you've probably seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, okay? It's been around for about 50 years. And, 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 and Moses is, leads the people out of, uh, the, the Israelites out of Egypt and, and, and ha, has this powerful encounter with God at a burning bush and, and then leads people through all this stuff and sees all these powerful things happen with God. And then he goes out into the desert with the people on the way to the promised land, and as he's going on to the promised land, the people start to grumble and complain, and he's leading all these people. And this is what he says about the leadership issue he has. He says, in Numbers 11, he says, I, am, I alone am not able to carry all of, this, all of these people, because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, God, kill me at once. That's another guy, a great leader who was depressed and going through just incredible burnout in his life. King David. King David, who, who goes in Scripture, and you know, he's, he's, he's wrote, written so many of the incredible psalms and so many things, and, he's, and he says to God and during, during a deep time of his life, he says this, he says in Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the floodwaters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I am in deep water, and the floods overwhelm me. Isaiah, the prophet, considered one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. He comes to a place in life, and this is his comment on life, Woe is me, for I am undone. And then in people that we, in our culture that we know that have been followers of Christ as well, for instance, I mean, Mother Teresa of all people. You know what she said one time? She says this, I am told that God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. Man, that sounds like a really powerful you know, witness right there, right? No, it's real. It's real. And then somebody, all of, you who live in, all of us who live in Illinois know about Abraham Lincoln. You know, Abraham Lincoln went some of the deep, 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 deep depression in his life. You know, one time he said this, this is a great quote. He says, I am, this is what Abraham Lincoln said, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would be not one cheerful face on the earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode, I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. So folks, I'm just, I'm just saying that the reality of Scripture is not that it, you just simply pray a prayer and it's all fixed. It's a process of staying close to God. It's a process of living according to God's plan in your life. It begins with prayer, but it's not just going to be fixed in, five in, in, in three easy words or five minutes in a quiet time once in a while. 
So what does that mean? Well, let me tell you something. Going back to the book by Wayne Quadera. A few months ago, I got the, 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 the uh, iPad version of it. And one of the things I do when I read books on iPad is really super easy to highlight. And then you can go back and hit a button and it shows you every highlight that you've ever done in that book. I've highlighted that book more than any book in the history of the world. There was more highlights than there is other text in that book. And the reason is, is because I relate to it so much. Let me just read some of the things that I relate to very much. And he's a senior pastor, so that's one of the reasons, I think, as well. He said this, As a senior pastor, my life was bookended with weekend services. And then I highlighted this, I had developed the discipline of image management, but on the inside I was experiencing a slow-motion implosion. Then he said this, although I never doubted my calling and gifting, what began as a joy that filled me now became a load that drained me. But I didn't know where I could trim it. People were coming to Christ and lives were being changed. How can all this be wrong? I mean, if you're a leading pastor in a growing church, you know, things have to be right, right? Not always. Then he says this, decisions, even small ones, seemed to paralyze me. Gradually, my creativity began to flag, and I found it easier to imitate rather than to innovate. And I was backing away from the very things that used to challenge and invigorate me. And as the years go by, always being on call can wear you down. A crisis is always just one phone call away. And when I was younger, it made me feel needed and valuable. But now it made me feel imprisoned. Then he said this, the constant expectation to come up with yet another great idea wears you out. It depletes your emotional system, reducing your ability to stay balanced. Long-term stress is not detectable in the beginning. It is well disguised by growing success or people's accolades. The numbing effect keeps you pressing forward, leading on empty until the bottom falls out. Then success is no longer your goal. Healing is. And then he goes on to tell about depression, about how he says this. He says long-term stress is a predecessor to depression. And I'm going like, well, what does that look like? Let me tell you what he says, a few things about that. He says this is about depression. Depression takes the place of initiative. Your indecision and anxiety increases. You begin to feel greater need for aloneness and isolation. Depression haunts you with feelings of worthlessness and clouds your hope. It attacks your faith and it smothers your future. A general decrease of pleasure in life and a lessened energy follows you like shadows, increasing into dark days and long nights. It has complexities that are difficult to unravel and physical, emotional, and spiritual symptoms as well. Depressed people believe that life is not getting any better and they see little hope for improvement. They feel cursed by persistent sadness, apathy, and melancholy feelings of heaviness. A very common symptom is the inability to stay focused for a prolonged period of time. Fatigue is never far away from a person wrestling with depression due to emotional energy due to the emotional energy it takes to stay relational. Difficulty sleeping is one of the more common symptoms of depression. It can contribute to the downward spiral that depression takes, leaving a person with less energy and a lowered interest in tomorrow's task. Now, when I read that, I read that as a person who relates to that. It's not always been true, but it's been true the last three or four years of my life. And I didn't realize how, how true that was until I read this and read this and read this and read this again. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I like what Charles, he said this. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its, work, of its sorrows, but only empties the day of its strength. 
And that's what depression, burnout, and all those things do. Today, I not only want to share where I'm at, and also where I'm going, and where we're going as a church, but I hope this also connects with some of you. Because I know some of you are going through some of these same things in your life. Because burnout, depression, and anxiety, and all these things are common things, even for those who follow Christ. So what do we do? I mean, how do we, what do, we, how do, we do Psalm 51, 12, which says this? Give me back the joy of your salvation. Keep, my, keep me strong by giving me a willing spirit. Well, one of the things that, that that was most helpful in the book. The thing is, several years ago, I just read the first half of the book. I didn't read the last half, which is all good, good stuff, you know, about well, how do you get out of this? And, and, and so recently I read the last half of the book. And the last half of the book, he talks about a lot of things about sabbaticals and other things like that. But he also talks about things that I want, something I want to share with you, and then I want to share with you how it relates to me and how it relates to this church. He talks about the primary cause. The primary cause of us getting to the place as followers of Christ where we can get, get burnt out and unfocused is he, call, he calls it the unexamined life or busyness. We live in a culture who drives us to do more and more and more and more and, and I believe that is Satan's greatest tool. That is not his words, that's my words. To keep us away from living the life that God wants us to live. It causes us not to pray correctly there's not like the right words, but to not stay connected with God, which is so busy. As a pastor, it's super easy for me to, to say, oh, you know, I've read the Bible today, I prayed today because I prayed with somebody and I read the Bible in preparation for a Bible study or for a, for a sermon. But the reality is, it's, it, pastors are probably the worst in being consistent in that area of our lives. Because we can justify it. But there, the thing is, is so often we let all the urgent things of life get in our way of, of the most important things in life. And so busyness does that for us. Socrates, many years ago, called it the unexamined, he said this, the unexamined life is not worth living. That's a pretty bold statement. It's not even worth living if you don't examine life. And so what he talks about, what he talks about, what, what, uh, Wayne Kader talks about in the book is this, and I believe it's true. You may not agree with it totally. It's just a thing he talks about, but I see it as true. He said, if you're going to enjoy healing and rest at its very core, you must discover and discern what he calls the top 5% of your life. He says this, 85% of what we do, almost anybody could do. Answer email. And we don't want to hear this because we think we're so important, Right? We are so important that, no, only, only I can do all these things. So 85% of what we do, I had a discussion with my wife, she's here somewhere. Um, I had a discussion with my wife about this. She goes, oh, I'm not sure. I said, just wait a minute, just wait, wait till I finish. You, just wait till I finish, okay? 85% of what you and I do, almost anybody can do. Check email, answer messages, attend meetings, making simple decisions. These tasks don't require elite expertise or even specialized skills. And most of these tasks can be delegated to other people or not even done at all. It wouldn't matter. But we do them all the time. And when you are burnt out and when you are tired, you simply default to these tasks because they're so easy to do. And so the problem is the top 15%, let's talk about those. The top 15% is divided into two groups. The next 10%, he said, are things, uh, or 10% is things that, uh, 
that, would, that, that somebody else with the same training or a modicum of training like yours could do as well. Uh, after all, if, we were, if you were trained and I was trained, then somebody else can be trained and they can do it too, right? No, they can't. And they do it the way I do it. No, I mean, because, you know, that's just the way it is. Get over ourselves. None of us, me included, are that important. Yes, you have an important role, but the thing is, is that we got to get over ourselves and quit thinking, and that's what the kind of type of thinking that I have to do it all. If I don't do it, it won't get done. Maybe it'll get done better. You ever thought about that? I've had to think about that a lot. And so he says, you know, things like the, the 10, next 10%, he said, with appropriate schooling and experience, someone else can perform a surgery. They can manage an engineering project. Just go down the list. But then he says this. This is the important part. He said, but there's 5% of what you do that only you can do, and you can't delegate it, you can't give it away, and you need to understand what that top 5% is because that top 5% is what feeds your soul. And he said, so he begins to talk about that. He, and so he said this, I said, he said, I had to rethink what was my most important to me, what God had asked me to do and how I could restructure my life to concentrate on these priorities, he says, in his final stretch. And he began to do this when he was 52 years old. Uh, Wayne Kader is about the same age I am now, but he was 52 when he wrote this book and when he burned out, bottomed out. He had all kinds of issues. Pastor of a huge, successful church in Hawaii. I keep bringing that up for some reason. I think it's hilarious. I think it's God, got, God has a sense of humor. And he uses people that, you know, in places like that as well. So he said this. He said, so he wrote them down. And when he wrote these down, I'll put these on the, I'll put these on the screen just a minute. When, when he wrote these down, as I began to think about this, and I wrote myself a separate list, my, my list was almost identical. I'm not quite as articulate as he is in some of these things. But my list was almost identical to this. He, he gave six things that he says, if he neglected, would affect the rest of his life and things that only he could do. Here's his top, top 5%. Next slide. A vibrant, growing relationship with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can anybody do that, else do that for you? No. Only you can do that. A healthy and genuine relationship with your spouse. Nobody else can do that either. That is only something you can do. An authentic family that is close to God and close to one another. Guys, we are called to be leaders of our families. And if we don't do it, our wife will do it, but she doesn't have your help, so there's going to be a problem there. And so that's one of the things that I have to do. I have to have an authentic family that is close to God and close to one another. And it takes time and it takes energy, not just leftovers. Number four for me was a God-pleasing ministry. A God-pleasing ministry. What does that mean? It means doing the things that, that, you know, I was not called to be senior pastor of a church. I was called to minister wherever I was in different ways. And I've, I've played different roles at different times in my life. I'm not called to a role. I'm called to minister to God. And then God leads me wherever he wants to take me. A physically healthy body and a creative soul. I didn't, the creative soul is from Lane Kader. I don't even know what that means. Creative soul? 
I guess in Hawaii you figure it out. I don't know. But the reality is a healthy body. Can anybody else do that for you? You might have a personal trainer. You might do anything like that. But you're the one that has to do the exercise. You're the one that has to eat right. You can excuse, make every excuse in the world. I can make every excuse in the world, but I'm responsible for that. And if I don't have a healthy body, and let me tell you something, it's getting harder. I'm in an age and stage of life where a lot of things just don't work as well as they used to. I don't have the energy level that I used to have, and that's one of the problems now in my life. And it doesn't mean you can't have energy and keep going on, but things change. When I exercise now, man, I hurt for three days. And I don't, have, I don't even have the energy to want to exercise, which I used to. And then finally, taking time to enjoy life with family and friends. Are those important things that only I or you can do? Yeah. That's the top 5%. But see what happens then, and this is what he talks about, this is something important that you can apply to your life is this. If you're going through burnout, if you're anxious, if, you're, if you've been depressed, the only way you can turn, begin to turn this around is spend time reflecting on the things that are most important in your life and then make the changes necessary to make sure that happens. So let me share with you where we're going as a church. About a year ago, I started talking to our leadership team about transitioning. I turned 62 uh, in about three months. You know what 62 is? It's a magical age. (laughs) Right? It's called social insecure, I mean security age. But it doesn't mean necessarily that I could, I could try. I began, I, I went to a financial planner uh, uh, that I've worked with for several years uh, about six months ago and sit down and talk with him. I said, okay, tell me what the numbers mean. He said, Bill, you can do it, but you're going to be on destitute if you do it at 62. But if you wait till 66, which is the magical age, the other magical age for me, some of you who are younger, it's going to be, you know, 70, 80, you know, you know, if you're really young, it might be that as well. But he said, you know, here's what you'll do. And so I'm going like, okay. So I said to the leadership team, my goal is to retire at 66. Doesn't mean I'm going to quit and just go sit on a beach somewhere, even though that sounds pretty good in some days. (laughs) But the reality is, is I would be miserable not doing anything. And so I'm going to transition to something else. And so can we begin to think about it? So a year ago, we started talking about that. And then I actually gave him a book (laughs) called Next. It's a book that's written by people that talk about what it means to transition and how churches have done it for years. And I began to also understand something else. The most healthy thing a church can do as is is, is pastors, not just senior pastor, but any pastor transitions, is to have a, an overlap where the person that's going out, if it's a healthy ministry, goes in, in another, uh, uh, has the other person come in and kind of they kind of work together and then they transition. And so we talked about it, you know, a year ago, we talked about it maybe a couple of years down the road, that would happen. But recently, one of the things that began to, we began to talk about, and they saw in me as well, and we had some, some good discussions about this, was, was the fact that truly, uh, we're at a great place in the life of Great Oaks. We paid off our debt. The church is still growing. Uh, we're, ready, we're getting ready to hire. We actually put online a, a, about three weeks ago to hire two new staff pastors, one adult ministries pastor, one an associate youth pastor, to work in our ministries. 
And, and so we're at a place where we're going to take the next, charge the next hill. That's the way I look at it. But in the midst of that, I realized something. And they realized something about me. And I appreciate this. I didn't like it, but, but they realized it too. And that was this. That uh, my... What's the word? My ability, but my, my energy to, to charge the next hill is not quite there. I've been doing this for 36 years. 27 of which has been the point man. And there's a difference between being the point man and on staff. There is. I've been both places. And I'm going like, okay, I'll try to hold on for four more years. But they had the wisdom to say, Bill, we don't want you to have to just hold on. We want you to be successful because we believe you still have legitimate ministry to do here at Great Oaks. But maybe, maybe it won't be we don't have to wait four years to do that. So here's what's going to happen. Here's the plan. Some of you will go like, really? Well, you think about it and you know, pray about it and you'll be all right too. Um, <laughs> we've taken off the board the uh, pastor, adult ministries pastor uh, position. I'm going to fill that position over the next four years. I'll still teach on a regular basis, not as much as I do now but I'll teach some, but I'm going to move into that position. No longer be the point man. You don't know how much of a load that's lowered off me just thinking about that. Secondly, that means we're going to immediately begin the process of putting together a pastor search committee to look for the next lead pastor of Great Oaks. And I'm fine with that. Okay, you hear me? I'm fine with that. This is not a demotion. This is, this is something we need to do. So, it was, I've had some hard conversations in the last week or two with my family. They, they can't figure out what's going on. And I have to have conversations this afternoon on the phone as I'm driving to Fort Wayne um, with my parents about this. I, I'm going to try to help them to understand. I, I have an email in the hopper in the draft envelope of my computer to send to my sisters so they won't see it on Facebook and go like, what's going on? And I have to explain everything. But I want to let you know something. This has happened pretty quickly here <laughs> in the last few weeks. But I believe it opens the door for new leadership who has the energy and maybe, and something else has happened. I shared this with the leadership team too. The ministry that, that I'm in, that I've, the position that I hold at Great Oaks has changed over the last 14 years. When I came, there was 120 people. I worked with everybody. I kind of knew all the families in the church. I kind of had connections with people. Over the last 14 years, what has happened is I've become more a leader of leaders. And so the role of senior pastor is not the same as it was 14 years ago. I like the role. But what has happened, what has happened over the last few years, I felt more and more and more disconnected from you guys. And so one of the things I see that's going to be a very valuable thing for me is to be reconnected with a lot of you guys. Now, I can't, you know, adult ministries, but I'm going to be working with every small group leader in the church. I'm going to be working with men's ministries, with, with, with women's ministries. I'm not going to do the women's ministries, of course, but, uh, you know, uh, but, but do all those things. 
Try to help our marriages. Get, get, bring back married life live and some other things that will help us to go forward and strengthen marriages as well. Work with our staff in regard to parenting things. Because those are the things that are hugely important for us to go forward as a church. And when I talk about those things, I'm excited about those things. So, that's what we're doing. That wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. Because <laughs> some of you are smiling at me, and you know, and some of you. Okay, let me conclude by saying this. If it's true that 85% of what you and I do, anybody else could do, and if it's true that 10% can be done by anybody that trains something like, but there's only 5% that only you and I can do, what's important for you and I to do? To stop long enough to examine. That, that, list, that list that's up there, those lists of those top six things, I think are pretty much true. You just change the wording a little bit of all of us, right? You just copy his list and say, Wayne, thank you. But for you to do that, and place that, let me, let me say this. We won't be held accountable for how much we have done, but for how much we have done of what he has asked us to do. And the only part he asks us to do that only we can do is what? 5%. Six, I don't know, we'll worry about the percentages later. And if you want to really, really live life to the max, you need to reflect enough and slow down enough, which this whole thing has made me do, to say what's most important in life. Am I going to continue to do everything and continue to go down the, the path of burnout and, and, and starting to see signs of depression? Or am I going to change some things in my life and do what God called me to do? Have a great relationship with Him. Continue to have a great relationship with my wife and, and, and not be so gripey like I am. She, she, she'll, she won't tell you that because she's too nice. But, you know, that's part of the deal too. To have a great relationship with my kids, even though they're, 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 they're out of the home and, and far away and you know, but we still, you know, I'm going to hang out with one of them this week and, and spend some spiritual renewal time there and, and do that. Then my wife and I are going to be spending a couple of weeks on vacation together. And so you won't see us for about three weeks. And, but uh, that's good. Um, but you'll be in good hands because we've got plenty of good staff to take care of everything while I'm gone. Because I'm not responsible for except 5% anyway. <laughs> right? And neither are you. We don't, don't forget you're Christian, that we follow Christ, but don't forget you, that you're human as well. Because when you do, you'll find yourself where I found myself the last three or four years. Burned out, seeing no hope, but I appreciate the leadership in our church who said, hey, we want to help you to have hope again. And we see this way, and so when we prayed about, talked about it, whatever, this is, this is direction we're going. It means change for Great Oaks. Change is sometimes scary. I'm very unsettled right now. But change is also very good for this church and for me personally. And I hope that you'll take this example and apply it to your life, if, however it applies. 
and understand that, you know, God loves you. He has a plan for you, and it doesn't mean you have to do everything. Just the 5%. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your incredible love and your goodness. We pray that you would just enable us this morning to, to understand the things that I've shared are from the heart. And hopefully, God, will also understand that, uh, that, <laughs> that we, as, we as followers of Christ, we're human beings. That means we're frail. It means we, we sometimes just don't get it in regards to following you. We think that all we have to do is just busy, busy, busy all the time, go crazy, try to do everything like the world tells us to do. And truthfully, the world system is, is led by Satan. And God, we don't spend enough time reflecting, enough time thinking about what's most important. And because of that, God, we just get so busy that we never, never, never really do the things that really feed our soul. And so this morning, God, I would ask that you would just enable us. Would you enable us to look at you, God, and keep our eyes upon you and slow down and think about those things that are most important. And then, God, what we would do is that we would make them not just a priority, but the top priorities in our life, this top 5%. Realizing it's not about jobs or positions or even about resources. But God, you designed us in such a way that when we are anxious and worried that we would not just spend a little bit of time with you, but we would have that, that relationship with you in such a way that we would spend lots of time with you, God, as you change our minds and change our hearts and then change the way we live so we don't think we have to do everything. Thank you, God. Thank you so much for your incredible love and your goodness. Thank you for your God that gives us hope and a future. Thank you, God, that you're never finished with us. But sometimes it means things have to change so that you could work in our lives and still direct us in what we do. Thank you, God, for your incredible love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.